Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm delighted to welcome uh, from her perch near Boston, Kelly Levin. She's a senior associate with WRI's Global Climate Program. And Kelly, you really are the master communicator in terms of telling people what the science of climate is telling us about the changes we need to make in society. So I'm delighted to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. After the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released its most recent report, there was a great deal of media coverage about the findings and the recommendations. My favorite thing to read, Kelly, is the series of blog posts you wrote for WRI, which is why I'm so glad that you're on the show. And the one that I want to discuss with you today is basically eight things that we need to know about the IPCC report. Before we dive into those eight things, I wonder, why did you decide to write this particular post? So this is a really important publication that came out that informs um, not only the community at large about the latest science, but also um, decision makers who are working to implement the Paris Agreement. Um, the Paris Agreement has um, goals to limit warming to well below two degrees with efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees. And the countries around the world commissioned the IPCC to put together a report that looked at not only what were the impacts of 1.5 degrees versus two degrees of warming, but also how could we possibly get there. So when this report was launched, and it's a pretty large report with multiple chapters, uh, I felt like it would be interesting to distill some of the top takeaways uh, so that others around the world can understand what the findings of this very important landmark report were. You've been tracking this uh, closely for your uh, entire career, really. Uh, was there anything in the report that really surprised you? I think that, um, so the IPCC is basically a summary of the latest and greatest scientific research. It doesn't necessarily have new findings per se, but it really um, puts them all together. And what is really impactful is to see it indeed all together. And it really kind of hits you when you see impact after impact uh, under a 1.5 degree warming or two degree warming and how bad the future really could be if we don't get our act together to reduce emissions. I think just seeing the culmination of all of that research and all stitched together was really impactful. There wasn't any one finding that was particularly surprising because again, this is just a collection of the latest research that had already been published in peer reviewed literature, but just seeing it all together was very, very powerful. So I want to do a lightning tour of your eight big takeaways. The first is limiting warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade requires major and immediate transformation. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you uh, think about the rate of emissions so far, they have been climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, we had a brief period where you had um, energy sector carbon dioxide emissions level off for a little bit and then they started to climb again. Um, but um, we are talking about not only bending the curve, uh, but really bending it dramatically. Um, and um, if you think about what is necessary to reach a 1.5 degree target, you essentially have to um, have to have emissions from current levels 
um, in the next dozen years. So right now we're at about 52 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, by 2030, uh, we're talking about getting to around 25 to 30 gigatons of carbon dioxide. So that's basically slashing it by 45%. And then by mid-century, getting down to net zero emissions. Um, we've seen uh, rates of decarbonization in particular sectors with particular technologies, but the scale of transformation of what we are talking about is unprecedented. And uh, it will be a wild experiment for us. And this needs to happen across the board in all sectors, in all geographies. Um, but the report shows that this is technically still feasible and we know how to do it. Uh, and the question is, will we get our act together to really make these immediate shifts? Your second point in the blog is one you've already covered. The scale of the required low-carbon transformation is unprecedented. So I'm going to jump to number three. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C can mean different things with different results. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? The blog has some wonderful examples. Sure. So um, you could think about a 1.5 degree target in a few different ways. And in fact, the scientific community has, has done so. They um, have modeled scenarios where you limit warming to 1.5, where you're kind of gradually getting up to 1.5. Um, but the large majority of modeling scenarios, 81 out of 90, actually exceed this temperature threshold before dropping back down. So they might go up to 1.6, 1.7 degrees Celsius before they come down to 1.5. And this can have a very um, different impacts than those scenarios that don't overshoot 1.5. So if you think about impacts of warming on a fragile ecosystem, if you exceed the 1.5 goal for many different years um, at a much higher temperature, you could lead to species extinction or other irreversible impacts, um, even if temperature is brought to 1.5 later. Um, also, uh, the pathway taken to limiting 1.5 is really going to um, determine what kind of world we live in. Uh, so for example, if you prioritize a rapid reduction in black carbon, that could help stem the loss of snow and ice in the Arctic, whereas if you prioritize other measures, it might have other co-benefits. Um, and lastly, just to mention about the 1.5 degree target, this is for a global average temperature increase and temperature increase at any one location as well as, as, as its impacts are gonna vary in any particular location depending on their latitude, their altitude, uh, and how vulnerable they are. You know, I think that point about the average is so simple and yet compelling because I think a lot of ordinary people, they sort of say, well, you know, it's 80 degrees today. It's kind of warm. What if it was 81? It would not be that different. They think of this in terms of the average being equally spread around the world. And of course, it's, it's not going to be equally spread around the world. It's going to be much, much more in some places. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the impacts are going to differ dramatically. Your fourth assertion, a 1.5 degree limit to warming is not safe for all. Yeah, so the report, um, if you think about the warming today, we have about one degree Celsius of warming um, to date. Uh, and that has um, brought about many climate impacts. If you think about the extreme weather events that we're seeing, we're seeing um, species move, um, we're seeing stronger storms and heat waves wacky winter weather. Um, 
half a degree Celsius of warming may not sound like a, a lot, but what the report finds is that um, there will be significant climate change impacts with 1.5, and this will hit hardest with um, those that are the most poor and vulnerable um, because of their loss of livelihoods and due to food insecurity and displacement of population and health effects. Um, so if you look at certain impact areas like um, you know, low-lying coastal areas, human health, oceans, these are very vulnerable systems, um, and even 1.5 degrees is not safe. Well, that leads so well to your fifth point, because I'm thinking, okay, if even 1.5 degrees is not safe, screw it. Let's give up. <laughs> your next point in response to that, risks associated with warming are substantially lower at 1.5 degrees C than at 2 degrees. Right, exactly. So um, even though there are certainly impacts of 1.5, some of the most catastrophic climate impacts can be avoided with 1.5. And the risks associated with um, 2 degrees are much more significant across a number of different areas um, than 1.5. Uh, so just to give you a few examples, if you think about extreme heat, the percentage of the global population exposed to severe heat waves at least once every five years is two and a half times worse with two degrees than 1.5. Uh, you can think about um, ice-free Arctic um, in the summers, and under 1.5 degrees Celsius, that happens once every century or so. Under two degrees, that would happen at least once every decade. Uh, sea level rise, um, under 1.5, it's 0.4 meters. Under two degrees, it's 0.46 meters, and while 0.06 meters doesn't sound like a lot, that really translates to millions on the coast affected. Um, the amount of Earth's land area where ecosystems are going to completely shift to a new type of ecosystem like a tropical forest to a savanna is almost two times worse under two degrees than, than under 1.5. Number six, emissions will need to reach net zero around mid-century. What do we mean by net zero? So basically net zero are a combination of emissions and removals um, and you add it together and you get to zero essentially. Um, what that means is that if there are residual emissions that you have essentially negative emissions or removals to balance that out. And what the science suggests is that in addition to large emission cuts in the next um, decade, um, we're basically going to have to bring carbon dioxide emissions um, as close to zero as possible. Um, and there will be some emissions that are potentially too difficult or costly to um, abate. And then also uh, remove a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere as well. Well, that brings us to number seven. All 1.5 degree emissions pathways rely upon carbon removal to some extent. I think some people who don't follow this closely they think of geoengineering and some of these scary things about sulfates in the sky and basically further messing with the atmosphere. The work here that you and others have been involved in shows there are pathways for removal that are actually pretty safe and even possibly cost-effective. What do we mean by carbon removal? Right, so, so there's a difference between solar radiation management, which basically um, plays with the amount of solar radiation that's hitting the Earth. So you can think about putting mirrors into space and having some solar radiation bounce away from that so it doesn't hit the earth. And carbon removal, which is um, basically sucking carbon uh, directly from the atmosphere um, and then storing it. Um, you know, the perfect example is a, a tree, which does that, and it's the 
um, safest form we have, our trees and soils. Um, and um, there are also um, a number of technological approaches to carbon removal that are um, under development and being studied, like direct air capture and storage and bioenergy plus CCS and some frontier technologies that are really, really quite interesting. Um, the IPCC report shows that um, for all of the pathways uh, to get to 1.5 degrees, uh, carbon removal is necessary to some extent. There is a lot of variation in terms of what level and um, how you actually uh, scale carbon removal to get to that level. But uh, the report really makes it clear that we do need to start to invest in these strategies. Uh, but at the same time, the amount of carbon removal that the models rely upon, um, that scale is uh, completely un unproven, and if we can't actually scale carbon removal to the extent that the models suggest, it could be a major risk of our ability to limit warming to 1.5. That brings us to your last point, which uh, probably won't surprise anybody who's followed this. Everyone, countries, cities, the private sector, individuals, must strengthen their action without delay. I mean, clearly the report is a call to action. What do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I would just add that there are some immediate opportunities coming up. Uh, so for example, the Paris Agreement invites countries to update their climate change commitments by 2020. This is gonna be a really important moment to watch uh, to see if countries step up ambition. Uh, we saw a really amazing uh, group of um, mayors and uh, subnational governments and private sector and funders come together in California in the Climate Action Summit, uh, come together with new pledges. I think there is a lot of action. Uh, what we know now is that we really need rapid implementation of, of what we've already committed to and then you know, stepping up much more to strengthen, strengthen that action. Um, I want to ask you a closing question, and it's a, it's a difficult question for those of us who are in the business of encouraging people to act, and that goes to the question of of hope and despair. And while the case for action seems very clear to me, uh, in your writing and other writing at WI and elsewhere, it's clear that technologically we could actually do this. The politics is so difficult. You've got the current administration in the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, the uh, likely victor in the Brazil elections also uh, making noises about uh, reversing commitments to climate action, and even in countries that uh, remain committed, like China and India, uh, progress is very slow. How do you get up every morning and keep working on this, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm one of those people that is motivated by the size of the problem. Um, I think this is really the most important issue facing our time. Um, and that, that does motivate me personally. Um, I, I would also add, I think that as we saw even with um, in the United States with the last election, things can change really, really quickly. Um, and things can um, hopefully change back really quickly to a time where um, people do recognize the importance of climate action. I think that we're already seeing demonstrated uh, economic benefits of, of climate action and real opportunities and new technologies and uh, leadership there. Um, and also, I think that every little bit counts. And I know that this conversation was focused on 1.5 and 2, 
Um, but even, you know, there's a difference between 2.4 and 2.6. And um, even if we're um, making small amounts of progress, uh, it, it does help. Um, there is no magic around 1.5 or, or 2. Uh, and everything counts and we really need to just do everything that we can do to, to shift um, the math. Thank you for addressing it. It's something I struggle with every day. And uh, I think what you said about things can change quickly. Uh, I'm tempted to say your lips to God's ears. <laughs> um, you know, let's, let's hope that that's the case. And there are indeed uh, many reasons to uh, believe that it is, is possible. Certainly, uh, human ingenuity is one of the strongest uh, traits of our species. And uh, we hope that the work of you and others in drawing attention to this problem will help to um, alert humanity that uh, now is the time to act. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest has been Kelly Levin. Uh, she is one of the top climate communicators here at WRI. And Kelly, I thank you for your work, and it's been a delight to talk with you. We're going to have you back on the show soon to talk more about carbon removal. Thank you so much. Terrific. Thank you, Lawrence. Until next time, you can find the WRI podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and other places where podcasts are given away. Thank you for listening.